Some six months before his death and resurrection, Jesus passed through Galilee for the last time. His public teaching tours there were over. His focus now was getting the disciples ready for what awaited him in Jerusalem, and that wasn't an easy task. He had plainly told them he would suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed. He had also told them that after three days he would rise again, but they didn't hear that part. In fact, they shut down completely whenever he started talking about being rejected and killed. Peter even rebuked him for saying such. So as they began their journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, Jesus once again begins talking about what's, what awaits him. He wants them to be ready for what lies ahead. And from there they went out and began to go through Galilee. And he was unwilling for anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Jesus was intentionally trying to avoid the crowds, taking the back roads through Galilee, so he could spend time with his disciples, teaching them. And the message was basically the same. He was going to die and rise again in three days. But now he added something new. He said the Son of Man would be delivered up. The word can also be translated betrayed, and it will later be used to describe what Judas did. So Jesus is now predicting his betrayal. You'd think this would really catch their attention and make them ask questions. It didn't. But they did not understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask. They didn't understand all this talk about death. The Messiah had to reign. He had to take over Jerusalem. He had to sit on David's throne. What Jesus was saying didn't make sense. But they didn't ask him to clarify it. They were afraid to ask questions. Not because they were afraid he would rebuke them for asking, but because they were afraid to understand. They didn't want to understand. They didn't want to hear about all this. Over the past couple of months, we too have been hearing a lot of bad news, and I'm sure we're tired of it. Even glimmers of good news that break through are quickly overshadowed by more bad news and warnings not to assume we can go back to the way things used to be. Like the disciples, most of us don't want to hear about it anymore. So when we get a chance, we change the topic. That's what they had been doing while walking along. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. And they got to Capernaum and went into the house, probably Peter's home. Jesus asked them what they'd been talking about. Apparently, they had lagged behind Jesus, not wanting to give him the opportunity to talk to them about his death and discuss something that was of more interest to them. 
Now, Luke makes it clear that Jesus knew what they'd been talking about, but he wanted them to admit it. They wouldn't. They kept silent, probably embarrassed and a little ashamed at what they'd been discussing. Jesus had been trying to get them to understand about his death, that the Messiah would have to suffer and die. But the disciples weren't discussing that. They were arguing about which of them was the greatest. It probably started when Peter, James, and John came down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And the other disciples asked what had happened. Can't you see them grinning, saying, Sorry, we can't tell you. Jesus told us to tell no one. I'm sure the message, we're closer to Jesus than the rest of you, came across loud and clear and no doubt started the argument that Jesus now confronts them about. How would you have handled this situation? Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. You've been trying to get a group of men ready to take over your work to establish the church, to understand why you have to give your life as a sacrifice for sin. And what do they do? They start arguing over who's the greatest among them. We'd lose it, but Jesus didn't. His patience gives evidence to his divinity. He simply gathered them around himself and started teaching again. And sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he should be last of all and servant of all. When Jesus sat down, he was assuming the position of a rabbi about to formally teach his disciples. And his teaching here had to do with the topic of their argument. Who's the greatest and how? to be great. They couldn't or wouldn't understand at this point why the Messiah would have to die. Maybe they would at least begin to understand the true way to greatness. Now, do notice that Jesus didn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. He just showed them the way to true greatness. You know, God has given us all the desire to succeed, and we might actually want to be great. But the way to greatness isn't to argue and fight our way to the top, demeaning others and declaring ourselves to be the greatest. Now, you may convince yourself that you're the greatest by doing so, but no one becomes truly great that way. And history will no doubt reveal who was actually the greatest world leader when facing the challenges of a global pandemic. No, you don't become great by declaring yourself to be great. In fact, you become great by doing something that doesn't make you look great at all. Jesus phrased this truth in a paradoxical statement we can't ignore. If anyone wants to be first, he should be last of all, and servant of all. To be great, truly great, in men's eyes and God's, you must serve others. You become first, not by budding to the head of the line, but by willingly taking last place. 
That's the way to greatness, according to Jesus. And after stating it, he illustrated it and gave specific advice on how to achieve it. Beginning with, don't be a respecter of persons. And taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Jesus took a child, probably one of Peter's children, and set him in the midst of the disciples. He then picked him or her up and said, Whoever receives a child in my name receives me and him who sent me. Now, Matthew records that Jesus also said they would have to humble themselves and become like a child in order to even enter, let alone be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. But Mark narrows his focus and only records Jesus saying that receiving a child in his name is the same as receiving him. It would appear that Mark wanted to stress one particular point. What could it be? Well, disciples had been talking about greatness, arguing about it, in fact. And one of the first things we do as we climb the ladder of success is seek out those who can help us. We associate with people who are useful to us and will help us reach our goals. So it's easy to ignore the little guy on our way to the top. In fact, we tend to walk over those who can contribute nothing to our success, or at least we avoid cultivating friendships with them because they could be a social liability. But Jesus said if you accept a child in his name, you're accepting him and his father. Who would you rather have as a friend than that? Still, it is true. A child has little influence, at least on anyone other than their parents or grandparents. A child cannot advance a man's career nor enhance his position in spite of what some politicians seem to think. And other than love or a sense of pride in their accomplishments, a child can give very little to us. We must give to them. Sadly, Many people who are determined to reach the top find themselves too busy for children, even their own. And I'm afraid that some who have been trying to work from home or who have found themselves in constant proximity to their children for the past month can't wait to see them go back to school. Not that school is a bad thing, only that we should take advantage of what time we do have with our children. Because before we know it, the opportunity to play a primary role in the development of their life and their faith will be gone. Children were obviously the focus of what Jesus was talking about here. And within a few days, the disciples' feelings about children will have to be addressed again after they rebuke parents for wasting Jesus' time bringing their children to him. But what Jesus had to say about children is applicable to anyone who would tend to be a social liability 
ordinary people with no wealth or power or influence. Jesus is saying if we want to be great, we must serve those who aren't great. If we want to be great, we must meet people's needs, not use people to meet our needs. It's easy to ignore someone who contributes nothing to our status and seek only those who can. But God is no respecter of persons. All are of equal value in his sight. If we would be great, we must serve others. And not just those who might benefit us in one way or another. Nor just those who are part of our group or agree with us. For if we would be great, we must avoid a sectarian spirit. John said to him, teacher... We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who shall perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. When Jesus talked about receiving a child in his name, it apparently sparked John's memory. And he brought up something that had happened that he thought Jesus should know about. He and the other disciples had come across a guy who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. But he wasn't a disciple like them, so they tried to stop him. He wasn't one of Jesus' chosen twelve, so surely he didn't have the right to use the name of Jesus. That opened the door for further teaching on greatness. Because doing things that are great in God's name is not limited to those who believe they are the only ones entitled to do so. The guy wasn't doing anything wrong. He just wasn't part of their group. And Jesus made it very clear they were not to hinder him. He may not have been as close to Jesus as they were, nor understood his will as perfectly as they thought they did. But he was doing good, in his name no less. And they shouldn't try to stop him. How easy it is to fall into the trap of thinking that if someone's not part of our group, our political party, or our church, they should be silenced. But we don't have the right to silence people because they don't agree with us. I've never been a fan of televangelists, but now I am one. Here I am, preaching to you over the internet because we can't meet together in person. I do trust, however, that you'll not assume listening to me preach on TV can take the place of our studying and worshiping together on Sunday mornings. 
since we now have the capability of making a video of the message available, we are planning to continue posting it along with the audio and textual versions we've offered for years on our website. But if it ever becomes obvious that some of you are staying home because it's more convenient than coming to church, I assure you we will unplug the camera. No, I'm not a fan of televangelism. And I seldom watch preachers on TV. A lot of faulty doctrine is espoused on the airwaves and the internet. And we must never assume someone has a good understanding of Scripture just because they speak with an air of authority. But they shouldn't be silenced. Jesus didn't examine the man's theology before telling the disciples not to hinder him. He wasn't speaking evil of Jesus. He was doing good. And as Jesus noted, he who is not against us is for us. In fact, Jesus made it clear that anyone who does good for him or a follower of his will be rewarded for it. Now, that doesn't mean eternal life can be bought with a good sermon or a glass of water. But God does take notice of anything done in his name or for one of his children. So we need to let people express their faith and their love for him, no matter how imperfect it might be. And we must be careful not to offend any who are still babes in the faith. We must not jump all over someone for not understanding something we've come to understand, nor intimidate them into silence, because they don't know everything we know. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't try to share our insight with others, but we must be careful not to make them give up what degree of truth they do have by challenging them on every point just because they don't see things the way we do. We must remember that truth is bigger than any man's grasp of it. We don't have a corner on the truth in politics or religion. What God says in his word is true, absolutely. But our understanding of it is often faulty. And we must therefore be tolerant of others. The basis of tolerance, however, is not lazy acceptance of anything. The feeling that there are no absolutes, no right and wrong. The basis of tolerance is simply the realization that no one has a complete grasp of all truth. We must obviously avoid a pluralism that insists all religions are true and everything that fills the spiritual void is good and should be embraced. But a sectarian spirit that says, I'm right and everyone else is wrong and should be silenced is not the way to greatness. Besides, truth is not enhanced by suppressing that which is not true. The greatness of truth can best be seen when viewed alongside that which is obviously not. The danger of causing someone who is trying to do good in his name to stumble brought Jesus to the last point. The danger of causing yourself to stumble by failing to maintain good moral and if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled 
than having your two hands to go into hell in the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. No matter what degree of greatness you attain in life, if you're condemned to hell, you lose. Jesus makes this point very clear with some shocking statements. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Be careful what you reach for. If in your quest for greatness you find yourself reaching too far and grabbing things that aren't yours, cut your hand off. It's better to lose your grip on something now than hang on to it and have it drag you into the unquenchable fire of hell. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Watch your step. If you start heading in the wrong direction, walking down a path that leads you away from the Lord, cut your foot off. It's better to be lame and stay where you are than forge ahead into unquenchable fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. Keep tabs on your focus in life. If you get visions of grandeur that are overwhelming and you can't get your eyes off wealth and beauty and the lust for power, pluck your eye out. Blind yourself to the allure of greatness so you can see where you're actually How easy it is to be corrupted by power and public acclaim. We've all seen it happen to politicians, but it can happen to any of us. Maintaining good moral character is essential for true greatness. And Jesus was very graphic about the need to maintain such in our drive for success in greatness. In fact, he makes it very clear that hell awaits us if we don't. And his description of hell left little to the imagination. He referred to it as Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, which was just outside Jerusalem. It was a place where children were burned alive, sacrificed to Moloch during the reigns of Ahaz and Manasseh. As part of Josiah's reform, it had been declared unclean, and from that time until Jesus' day, it was a smoldering garbage dump full of filth and stench and worms. That's quite a picture. One Jesus wants us to keep in mind 
when tempted to walk over people in a quest for greatness. He concludes by saying something that is very hard to understand. For everyone will be salted with fire. There are over a dozen interpretations of that verse, but all we're going to do this morning is acknowledge that we don't know if everyone is a reference to those who will be cast into hell or to everyone in general, and that we don't know if he's talking about the fire of hell, the fire of persecution, or the fire of hardships in life. The point that Jesus does seem to be making in verse 50, however, is that we've all been made salty by some kind of fire in this life or by the threat of it in the life to come. And it's our job to act as salt in the world. It's our job to flavor and preserve society. And the best way to do it is by becoming great through serving others and maintaining a Christ-like character. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. That's how Jesus achieved greatness, and that's how we achieve it. Father, we are indeed in the midst of some hard times. Things are happening that are seemingly out of our control. And there are those who, who want to be viewed as, as being great, saving us, and doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Some of us are even motivated to to strive for greatness in the eyes of men by what we do. And it's not wrong to want to be great, but we have to be careful. We've got to be very careful that we don't overlook those who seem to, to be in our way of greatness. We've got to be careful not to, to forsake what we know to be true in order to be accepted by those around us. We've got a heavy responsibility, Lord, in the midst of a world that, that needs to be flavored by the gospel and preserved by truth. Help us to be that agent wherever we are. When we have opportunities to go from our homes, let's go out and do things in your name that call people back to understanding that you are the God who created us. You are the God who watches over us. You are the God who provides for us. And you are the God who has prepared for us a place of true greatness before your throne, sharing in the glories of eternal life. Thank you, Father, for the promise of tomorrow. Just help us be faithful today. Christ's name.